Here we are. It's September 20th, 2022, and this is episode 11 of season two of the More Math for More People podcast. Cheers. Hello, everyone. I'm Misty. And I'm Joel. And this is the More Math for More People podcast brought to you by CPM Educational Program. On this podcast, we discuss the CPM curriculum, trends in math education, and share strategies to shift instructional practices to create a more inclusive and student-centered classroom. We also highlight upcoming CPM professional learning opportunities and have conversations with math educators about how they do what they do. And we always try to have a little bit of fun and laughter as well. Indeed we do. So come and find out what shenanigans we're up to on this episode. Boom. So Joel, I think today is Bella's favorite day. I can't wait to hear this story, but it is <laughs> National String Cheese Day. It is National String Cheese Day. And one time, sometime <laughs> in the past, I'm sure it was only once, uh-huh, uh-huh. I was eating some string cheese and... Bella was there. And so, and I, I was like, oh, would you like some string cheese here? And then now I never have to eat string cheese by myself again. <laughs> she can hear, she could hear the wrapper or something like, and then she's just like, mom, is that string cheese that you're eating? <laughs> you know that I would like some. Similarly, I don't, I don't even never need to use the um, like shredded cheese. I don't ever oh. have, need to do that by myself because Bella, for a while, she would someone would come and trim her nails here at the house uh-huh. and then out on the porch and they had a little thing and everything. And so I would just feed her shredded cheese while they were doing it. And she would just, she'd just mack it on the string cheese, you know, the shredded cheese the whole time and totally oblivious to them, like on her nails. She didn't care. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, so shredded cheese, she loves, and the same thing, she hears the package and she's just like, oh, mom has string cheese or shredded cheese. That's so cool that it's the sound, not even the smell. Yes, the sound it is. Oh, it's very much the sound. She knows that I'm getting <laughs> cheese out. So yes, so National String Cheese. I I seem to remember when I feel like, and you know, so it's always hard to tell about these things when you're a kid and you discover something. Mm-hmm. And in my in my brain, when I discovered it, I thought that was when it had been invented. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, oh, this is the first time this thing ever existed. So I don't know if this is true or not, okay. but I feel like I remember. <laughs> When string cheese became a thing. When it got invented? Well, I don't know if invented is the right word. But that that like prior to this, yes. I don't remember there ever being string cheese in the store or anything like that. And we would go to this cheese factory that we lived near. Okay. And we would we would buy cheese. And one of the things we could buy was these like giant like three pound things of the string cheese. And that oh was the first gosh. time we'd ever heard of string cheese and we'd eat all the string cheese. And then sometime after that, I remember that we could buy it at the store. Like I don't, wow. I don't feel like it was a thing we could have bought at the store before that. So I'd be curious if you have information on when string cheese was invented in your Wikipedia of National Day of the first the first mention of string cheese. Are you yes, interested? Please. Yes, eighteen eighty five. Oh, that's long, <laughs> long before I was born. And then some uh, some other milestones though. Nineteen seventy six. Cheese sticks became a thing. 
And is that then, different than string cheese? Mm-hmm, because string cheese is like that mozzarella, specifically the way that they make it is so when you tear it, uh-huh. it creates those yeah. stringy portions. The strings. But like you yeah, could yeah, have yeah. a cheese, like a cheddar cheese stick. That wouldn't break apart like a string cheese. Oh, or, sure. No, I understand. And then uh, 1996, string mm-hmm. cheese really takes off. 1996? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, that was long after yeah. I was a child. This would have been about, probably about 1982. Two or three that I remember going to the cheese yeah, place, the cheese factory, whatever it was, and buying it directly from them. And it was it, it was like you know all the little cheese uh-huh. stick you know cheese stick, but they're string cheese, and it was just they were all like they weren't individually wrapped; they were all together just like in a thing, like a container, and then vacuum sealed or whatever. Yeah, like a big blob. Did you know that they can go bad? How would they not go bad? I mean, it's cheese. I, well, I, I think cheese forever. could be like a forever sort of thing, right? Like it's. Yeah, I mean, it depends on what kind of mold grows on it. <laughs> yes. You could just cut it off. You know, okay, so I think there are different kinds of people in the world. Okay. I don't know this is, but like if you if you take your cheese out of the fridge, mm-hmm. and sometimes there's mold on it, right? Like, yeah. Okay. So I think there are different kinds of people in the world. The people who are like, oh, this cheese is no good anymore, and just throw the whole thing away. There are there are the people who are like, mm, this is probably okay, and they'll you know slice off the pieces and still eat eat the rest of it. And mm-hmm, then I think mm-hmm. there are people who are just like, whatever, and just don't even think about it. Do you think there's people who eat the mold? Well, I think it depends on what the mold is, but for sure. <laughs> right. I mean, there's there's already mold on many cheeses. I it's suppose. always the interesting thing of like <laughs> some <laughs> some cheeses that are already quite mm. fragrant and have been in your fridge for a while. You're like, is this yep. cheese bad? <laughs> well. Yep. It's it's very hard to tell, but that, I, but it, I, they can definitely go bad. I would not recommend eating all cheeses forever. I cut the mold off. I'm that kind of guy. Mm-hmm. When I worked at the dairy, it's like with the yogurt. When yogurt mm-hmm. would expire by date, yeah. they would give it to all the employees to take home. And we take it home because it's still good because yogurt is it's yogurt. It was already it bad. bad. <laughs> it's like sour cream. <laughs> yeah. But if you open this yogurt or sour cream and there's pink on the top, I'm not mm. going to eat it. <laughs> well, <laughs> anyway, National String Cheese Day. <laughs> yeah. How you gonna, I, I think I know the answer to this. It says that if you want to celebrate to eat some, but how are you going to celebrate? <laughs> well, I'm going to try <laughs> to just eat it myself, which will be impossible okay. unless yeah. I do it somewhere outside of my house. I couldn't even do it like in the bathroom. I would just feel like I was cheating. Yeah. This fellow would be outside the door like, scrub, 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 scrub. <laughs> You know, and also I don't recommend eating cheese in the bathroom. That's just, it's weird. That that just sounds sad. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to try to eat string cheese all myself. Love it. Enjoy your day. I'll probably share it with Bella though. Excellent. Today we have a special guest with us. It's um, Pam Seda. Welcome, Pam. Thank you. We're so happy you're here. And, you know, one reason that we wanted to have you here on the podcast today was we know you recently did a presentation at the Academy of Best Practices up in Seattle. And uh, we just wanted to get your thoughts and hear what you had to say during that presentation a little bit. And again, thank you for being here. And would you please maybe just tell a little bit of your background and who you are and where you're coming from? Certainly. So I'm a recently retired math educator. Woo, woo, woo. I just retired in May from school district. Been um, working in K-12 
education for the past 30 years. I'm a former high school math teacher. I've been an instructional coach, a college instructor, and district math supervisor. So um, the vast majority of my time has been in K-12 education. Even though I got my doctorate back in 2007, K-12 education has been my passion and where I wanted to make the biggest difference. I am co-author of the book, Choosing to See, a Framework for Equity in the Math Classroom that I co-authored with uh, Kendall Brown. He's at UCLA, which is where I share my ICU care framework that actually came out of my dissertation framework. So I'm excited to still be able to do this work and, and share my passion. Awesome. Well, again, thanks for being here. So um, so tell us, tell us about the ICU care framework. I know that was one of the things that you talked about it at the Academy Best Practice, I think. And so I'm really curious to hear more about that and, and what is it? How can we use it? Yeah, certainly. Okay, so <clears throat> when I was doing my research for my dissertation, I came across this framework that was used in the multicultural teacher education literature. And it was a group of multicultural teacher educators who said, these are the instructional principles that should be included in a multicultural teacher education program. And of course, part of that has to do with wanting to model the principles for teachers that they need to implement in their classrooms. And so um, I actually came across a study where someone had implemented those principles in an English classroom. And for me, because it's all about that math, I said, well, if they can use this in an English classroom, let me apply it to a math classroom. And so I operationalized it for a math classroom. And then I did my research with student teachers who I was their university supervisor and looked at practical ways. What did they do to implement these principles? What were the areas that they struggled with? What were the areas that were easy for them? And my conclusions were, shouldn't be rocket science, but the, the things that were easy for them to implement were the things that were modeled for them in their program. And the things that were difficult for them to implement were difficult for them to model. And so I decided to take that framework and started teaching it to teachers that I worked with. At the time, I was an instructional coach. And um, one of my teachers who was in my session, and I actually was his coach, he said, Dr. Say, this is really good stuff, but you need to come up with an acronym or something to help us remember this. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So I went to the drawing board and out came ICU Care. <laughs> so ICU Care stands for Include Others as Experts, Be Critically Conscious, Understand Your Students Well. Use culturally relevant curricula, assess, activate, build on prior knowledge, release control, and expect more. So those are the mm. letters that represent each of the seven principles of the equity framework. And in, in, in our book, we spend time breaking down each principle in a chapter. Very cool. Awesome. So uh, what's your working definition of what it means to be a culturally relevant mathematics teacher? All right. So... One of the things that I think it's important to understand as a culturally relevant teacher is that you help students overcome the negative stereotype about diverse learners and about who is and who isn't mathematically smart. And so there are a lot of stereotypes out there about who's mathematically smart, who's not. A lot of our students I often say math has an image problem. And, and so people have this image of who's mathematically smart. And as a culturally relevant teacher, I feel like it's our job to help our kids see themselves, their personalities, their interests represented in the mathematics classroom. And that those are things that 
culturally relevant mathematics teachers do. And what what are some ways to create those relevant tasks? So one of the things that I've, and I actually shared this at the Academy Best Practice with your veteran teachers, is I've come up with this process. I call it stages. And I know I'm very well aware that there are teachers who are just overburdened with all kinds of stuff. And so I don't expect teachers to just all of a sudden one day say, oh, I've got this great social justice math task. I'm just going to give it to my kids. I have a continuum. So I say start with good cognitively demanding tasks. That is a good place to start. And if we took things like CPM and achieve the core and illustrative math and uh, places like that that have a wealth of cognitively demanding tasks and gave all of our students the opportunity to engage in that, that's, we're all well on our way to creating more equitable practices. And that's why I say start with good cognitively demanding tasks. And then I say the next step, this is a, it's a baby step, but it's, it's a baby step is change the names and contexts and things that are meaningful to your students. So, you know, put your students' names in there. I remember I used to do that with my tests purposely to kind of help reduce the anxiety. And I would see my students see their friends' names and problems and things like that. And they would just smile and they would kind of look around and smile because they recognized some of their friends' names or their names in the text. Put your school's names, put teachers' names, put your administrators' names. Those are things that just make it relevant and more personable so that kids understand, hey, I can do mathematics. It's not something that's just abstract. This is something that we, we can all do and I see myself. Um, and then I say step three is change the context. So it's like you can leave the math the same, but just change the context. So I've done problems where, I mean, that's one thing I share in my book is where we took the Oftentimes, pop culture, we were going to see Hidden Figures. Our school actually took a whole field trip to Hidden Figures. And me being a former high school teacher, I know, you know, one of our units is quadratic. So I just changed this context and made it a Hidden Figures context just to make it more interesting. I didn't change the math at all. I just changed the context. And then that's a stage three task where you change the context of it so that the context is something where students see themselves, they can see their cultures represented, but they can also see other cultures represented because sometimes a task can be what I call a mirror where students see themselves, but other times a task can be a window where they can see cultures and learn about other cultures. And it's important that students get to engage in both. That task can be both windows and mirrors. And then the last stage is giving a student a reason why, like, why are we doing this? You get this answer. Why is this important? Why do we care that the answer is 37 watermelons (laughs) or whatever the answer (laughs) is? And so, you know, I talk about questions that you can ask your students about, why this is meaningful and help them understand that they can be agents of change and that math is a tool to be a change agent, that you can use mathematical tools to be great citizens of our of our communities. I like how you break that down because at each one of those little pieces, as you're saying, it's a small step. So it's mm-hmm. each one like, oh, if I've done this, doing the next piece doesn't doesn't feel that hard, right? right? Like it, it's very small things. And and I can see how they could have a really big impact. 
when I was working on writing problems, I mean, I would use my students' names in them. And I remember all the time, they're like, Ms. Nicola, so-and-so's in this book, you know? And I'd be like, yeah, mm, isn't that interesting? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it just really caught, it catches their attention for sure. Yeah, the the thing is, I've heard many people say, you know, this, this textbook is not culturally relevant because it doesn't meet the needs of my kids. And no textbook can do that because no textbook writer, even though you knew your kids, you put your students in you don't know my students. You don't know. No, no textbook nope. <laughs> writer knows your kid. So that's why it's always good to start. Make sure that you have good cognitively demanding tasks. And then you can take those baby steps. And as the continuum, once you're comfortable with one step, you can take the next. And I think it's important that we empower our, our teachers to feel safe being able to do that. Making sure that I, I think in this process, teachers are still able to make sure that the tasks are still cognitively demanding because in all of those cases, you're not changing the math. Right, right. The math stays the same. Yeah. Nowhere did I hear you say scaffold the problem in any particular way or change the way it's structured right. or anything <laughs> like that. Yeah. It's it's really just changing. And it, I mean, it's going to, I'm not minimalizing. It's, it's changing the, you know, the dressing around it, but it's, but it's important dressing around it, right? It's, it's, it's right. vital that pieces around the math itself. Right. So that we can engage the kids so the kids will, our students will want to engage in the math. And right now the math is packaged in a way that our students aren't interested and, you know, they're not buying what we're selling. And even though what we're selling is a, a very strong tool that can empower them, that can, but it's packaged in, in something that is foreign to many of our students and they're just not interested. To me, it kind of comes down to your point of understanding your students and, and really knowing their families, knowing whether the community, knowing where they're coming from and getting that in there. Right. And that's our principle number two, understand your students well. And, um, and so one of the things it's, it's, I have found is how all of these things are really interconnected and why as a teacher, I can't focus on all of them at one time, but just having the framework and knowing these seven principles exist kind of helped me think about my instruction. And so while I might start with culturally relevant tasks in these steps, understanding the fact that I can't do that effectively if I don't take the time to understand my students and where they're from. Right. And so it also can't be I can't implement them effectively if I don't maintain high expectations for my students, because if I don't have high expectations or I tend to lower my expectations based on stereotypes that I've been I've encountered. Right. There's all kinds of reasons why we lower our expectations. But if I lower my expectations, then I'm not going to be able to implement those tasks. I'll be tempted to change them in ways that lower the cognitive demand. So true. Yeah, I think I think my two favorite parts of your of the acronym ICU care are release control and expect more. <laughs> <laughs> That's what many people tell me. They say the last two chapters of your book are so compelling. <laughs> yeah. Of course all the pieces are important. I think those two pieces though are the places I when I'm working with teachers, getting them to release control, getting them to Stop telling, stop, you know, doing all the thinking, 
right? Here, let me tell you how I understand it, right? That like, let go of that and let find out what they, what the, what the kids understand and what they're doing and what they're thinking and move from that. It's hard. It's hard. And it, and it does come from a good place. Absolutely. It comes from this place of, you know, I really want my kids to get it, but it comes from a place of kind of just not really understanding how our brains work. And there's so much more that we know about the brain now than we did when we were kids, mm-hmm. right? When we were coming up, there's so much more that we know about learning. And so we understand that really we learn by making sense mm-hmm. and we retain by connecting the thing to prior knowledge. And and that's kind of how our brains work. And I wish we could tell somebody something enough over and over again, and that's what would make it stick. But it's just not. That's just not how it works. So true. You know, our brains learn from making sense of things and connecting them to prior knowledge. Absolutely. And and as you're saying, it is from a it is from a good intent, right? I mean, I talk with so many teachers who are like, I just I want to make it easy. I'm like, unfortunately, learning isn't easy, right? It, that and we actually retain it better when it is somewhat hard, right? But that's a really delicate balance between being too hard <laughs> or too easy, right? They have to be right in that yeah, place, right? Exactly. Like, how do we make that struggle mm-hmm. productive? Mm-hmm. Um, And I think part of that struggle, that's part of reason why we need to have culturally relevant tasks, because when we wrap the math in a context that's engaging and intriguing and helps our students see themselves, they're more willing to engage in that struggle. They're more willing to put that energy and effort in and they're better able to retain the material because they have something to connect it to. Uh, Are are there any... um... I guess, strategies that you would recommend with this framework? Or Thanks for listening to part one of our conversation with Pam Seda. We'd had such a great conversation with Pam that we wanted to make it into two parts. So please join us on the next episode of More Math for More People podcast for the second half of our conversation with Pam Seda. See you there. Okay, so we want to make everyone aware. Yeah, we decided but... not to do this as a formal announcement, so we're not <laughs> going to announce it. We're doing it. We're making everyone aware that the I know it's very exciting. The the registration for the 2023 CPM Teacher Conference in February is now open. Woo woo woo! That's awesome. Yeah, so it's very exciting. It's going to be a great conference this year. Um, it'll be our second in-person conference since we stopped having in-person things for a while. And we're hoping to have like somewhere around 400, 450 people there. That'll be so great. Yeah. The the thing is you want to get registered before November 15th. Why? Because I'm going to tell you why. You get the early okay. bird discount. <laughs> the early bird discount is like $75 off the pre-conference and also um, $75 off the main conference. So if you did both, you ah, get $150 off. That's good. Yeah, it's a pretty good deal. It's easy to find. You, you go log in at mycpm.org. You go to the CPM web store to shop mm-hmm. and you can find the conference there and get registered Schools can register and do it with a PO and register all their oh, cool. teachers. You can register individually and pay with a credit card. It's it's very, very flexible. There's lots of ways to do it. There'll be five concurrent sessions with probably 12 
sessions going in each one of those slots. Yeah, 12 or 13. And then we're also going to do one of those sessions we're going to do different this year. It's going to have two 30-minute slots within the session. So there'll be shorter sessions, and you could go to one of the two 30-minute slots. And we'll also have poster sessions going at the same time. I'm excited for those too. We'll have like a dozen or so posters going. People will be able to walk around and look at the posters. You could do that during one of the 30-minute slots and then go see a 30-minute slot. Some of our 30 minutes will run in both of the times and things. So that'll be one of the concurrent sessions in the afternoon on Saturday. The other thing that'll be a little bit different this year is that um, our keynote, uh, we're going to have Peter Lillidal do our keynote this year, and it'll be in the afternoon. It'll be after lunch on Saturday um, because of his travel schedule and some other things to get him in. We had to move that a little bit. Very cool. And uh, so that'll be after lunch on Saturday, and then we'll have the poster session right after that, the poster and the 30-minute sessions. Registration includes your breakfast both days, Saturday and Sunday, and it includes your lunch on Saturday. So that's a pretty good deal. Yeah. You can also add on the reception for Saturday night. Okay. That was fun last year. Yeah, super fun. There'll be seven pre-conference sessions this year wow. available. Yeah, it's quite a list. There, I'll give you the list. We're going to talk about these more in uh, the next couple podcasts, as far as like what this what this means. But I'll give you the titles at least right now. So, okay, one of them is going to be um, building thinking classrooms in a CPM classroom. Okay, to kind of go along with the whole Peter Lilladall thing. Yeah, we're going to do leadership implementation support. Okay, we'll do foundations for coaching. We've got a couple, a few new ones, emerging multilingual learners. Um, we're going to do a session around that. I don't think that's the official title, actually, but it's going to be around that. Sure. Um, we'll do a Building on Foundations, which is one of our new PL events. We'll do students with exceptionalities in a CPM classroom, so mm-hmm. a whole inclusion kind of piece. We'll do a pre-conference on that. And then we're also going to offer a Foundations for Implementation Day 5, which has an assessment focus. Um, oh, cool. So if you can't get to a regional event, we're actually going to yeah, offer that. Yeah, you could come to one. this. All of those pre-conference options, we'll have seven different options available. And we'll talk some more about the details about what each of those things are, but we wanted to kind of list them and yeah. get them out there right now. So yeah, it's going to be great. I really, up. really, yeah, I really recommend that you get signed up before the 15th. Save yourself. 15th of November, correct? 15th of November. Yes. Yep. It's open now. It'll be open until mid-January. Registration closes um, January 13th. Okay. I ex- I think this year it's going to sell out before then. Before yeah. the pandemic, we sold out almost always before December. Wow. I feel like. So you should, yeah, I'm going to highly recommend you get in there and get Definitely recommend. And we'd love to see you there. Yeah, it'd be great. So that's a wrap for this episode of the More Math for More People podcast. For more information and to stay connected, you can find CPM on both Twitter and Facebook. The music for the podcast was created by Julius H. and can be found on pixabay.com. Join us for the next episode of More Math for More People. What day will that be, Joel? It's going to be October 4th, which is National Taco Day. And it's not only is it a Tuesday, so it's going to be a Taco Tuesday, but it's the one time a year when we really celebrate the taco. And there's just so many varieties of tacos. Like there's hard shell taco, the soft shell taco, the rolled taco, mini tacos, double tacos, right? With the cheese on the outside with another tortilla. Just so many options of the taco. And I know 
I'll be celebrating by getting out there and getting some tacos. In fact, it makes me think there's got to be some deals up there, right? So we're probably going to start looking for, for two-for-one tacos, maybe.